from the historically accurate studios of PBS 39 at the PPNL Public Media Center in the always Christmas city of Bethlehem, PA. It's time for another lupin-filled hour of chemical-free horticultural hijinks you bet your garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Yes, there's much more to lupins than that great Monty Python sketch. On today's show, we'll reveal how you can grow these show-stopping, four-foot-tall, multicolored beauties. Just keep them away from Dennis Moore. Plus, the story of the recreation of classic gardens at the Burnside Plantation. And lots of your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and obsequiously overwrought observations. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than a confused highwayman demanding you surrender your leguminous flowers. Welcome to You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39 in Bethlehem, PA. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, my old friend Pat Kapora will join us to talk about the historic Moravian Gardens at the Burnside Plantation. We'll also tell you about the marvelous flower, Lupin that I made fun of last week, but I'm enthralled with now. They're gigantically beautiful and will tell you how to grow them. But that's after many of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Julia, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you. How are you today? I am just ducky. Julia, how are you doing? I am fine, and I'm in Muncie, Indiana. All right. What a pleasure to hear from you. What can we do for you? Mike, my neighbor has a pokeweed, um, pokeberry weed, and it, he ha she has a two-car garage, and it's all behind that. How can I discourage pokeweed? Well, uh, you know, the question with any weed, so to speak, is what do you want to grow there instead? I have no control over that. Oh, so you, you fear her pokeweed is invading your space? It's invading my wildflowers. Oh, okay. Now, is, is this, um, you know, common names can sometimes throw us off. Is, is this the pokeweed that's famous from uh, Poke Salad Annie, the spring green that is edible in the spring but gets toxic as the summer goes along? I was looking in a dictionary, and it said that in the springtime you can eat the, the young shoots. Yes. Matter of fact, not only can you eat them, but they were part of a traditional spring tonic in the Appalachians. Uh, it really wasn't that long ago that people, you know, had to scramble for food over the winter. And as the winter would end, your stored food would be pretty much almost gone, and none of it would have been like green food with vitamin C or anything in it. Mm -hmm. So they learned which plants in the mountains uh, to go out and pick. And they would pick young dandelion leaves before they got bitter, and they would pick this plant, which they called poke salad, okay. and lots of other native plants that they had learned how to handle. And generally they would... Um, actually cook them up and kind of braise them in a pot. And then they drink what they called the pot liquor, which was the green liquid left behind. And that was the first one a day vitamin when you were coming out of the, uh, of the winter. This was like a great tonic to revitalize your body. Yes, but as it grows in the summertime, it gets as tall as five feet plus. And... Uh and your and your your wildflower garden is adjacent to this with no yes. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's across the alley okay so does she care what happens to it yes she does oh see she uh, she I wants went, to i was picking i was pulling up uh garlic mustard because that's highly invasive oh yeah and it it exudes a substance that deters the growth of other plants so it's that's it's it. doubly bad it, it ruins your wildflowers and so I pulled that, but, and she was not happy. But I asked her to check with the, her computer. Mm -hmm. And 
she doesn't want me to mess in her yard. Well, I mean, that's her right. Um, right. You have no right to be in her yard. Do you know where uh, the line is? Oh, yes. I mean, there's an alley between us. Oh, okay. But the thing is, it it's on the, the west side of my property. Mm-hmm. So the wind just blows stuff over to me. I and see. when it comes to garlic mustard, I don't ask anybody. I just pull it. Yeah. And, and get rid of it. I put it in a black sack and haul it to the dump. Well, yeah, uh, but but there is this issue of uh, you really shouldn't be setting foot over um, there, and you say there's an alley. How wide is the alley? Uh, it's a normal uh, car's length. Mm-hmm. So, and I have a six-foot fence. Okay. But, and I, on my side, there is no pokeweed. I don't want it. Gotcha. And I don't want the garlic and mustard. Mm-hmm. But is there some way, once, I mean, she doesn't do anything with this pokeweed. And... It just grows all, it spreads. Right, right. Well, um, as soon as you get to your property, Mm -hmm. uh, you have the right to drive in edging of any size you want. You really can't go over there and cut her plants. Uh, You could make a noxious weed complaint to your Mm -hmm. municipality, but that could cause a real war between. Well, and I have a neighbor who's a man who goes along and if he doesn't like anything, he cuts it down. Right. But and he never picks it up. So okay. Well, very... that's a that's a whole different story. Yes, the, it is. What but... I what I can suggest to you mm-hmm. is once you get onto your property, mm-hmm. and this is kind of a long term solution, but I think it might work well. Why don't you consider putting something in that would take the shape of a hedgerow? Um, you know, maybe replace the fence or put this on the other side of the fence, but a large bushy plant that would intercept any kind of seeds and um, and block the pokeweed from coming over to your property. You know, a line of ornamental grasses, for instance, would look would look lovely as the background um, for your pollinator garden. It would yeah. add it would add height at the back and it would deflect a lot of material. So there's nothing that I could put on it that would discourage it from growing. Well, no, yes, uh, but you can't put that on on her property. Right, on my property. Is there something that I can, I mean, I, uh, I have it, I have another piece of property and it has pokeweed and I dig it up. Mm-hmm. And I get tired of digging. Well, there is a relatively new type of herbicide whose active ingredient is iron. Mm-hmm. Um, Gardens Alive, who does uh, financially support the show, they sell that product as Iron X. And I have seen it for sale at retail locations. You just want to look um, for H-E-D-T-A, which is one of the symbols for iron, or the words iron as the active ingredient. But it's a very good uh, broadleaf herbicide and probably... Between that and maybe a flame weeder would be your best chance at uh, doing some of this work standing up. Okay, that's what I wanted to know. I'm not going to mess with her property. That's not mine. Yeah, you really can't. No, I have to live with it, and I, I have my side, and I can, I can control it. And I will take your advice and uh, consider uh, maybe daffodils or... Uh, like- daffodils would be too ephemeral. You want something that's going to have a lot of substance 24-7. I, I always uh, fall back on ornamental grasses because I think they're fabulous, uh-huh. and I think they would their height would complement your pollinator garden. Okay. All right, Jewel? Thank you for being on Indiana Public Radio. Oh, thank Indiana Public Radio for me. They're a great partner. (laughs) 1-833-727-9588. Lauren, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Hello, Lauren. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I am just ducky, thank you for asking. Where is Lauren (laughs) doing great? You know, I am doing great in Chandler, Oklahoma. Oh, excellent. Excellent. What can we do you for? You know, I am having a pretty serious succulent situation. Um, So I love indoor plants, 
And I've always heard that succulents are pretty easy to take care of, but I keep killing them. And I know it's user error, but I'm not sure what I'm doing wrong. Well, now you make me wish that I had a better memory. About <laughs> about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, we had uh, a hookup with uh, a guy, an author in South Africa, who had oh. written a new book on succulents. And oh. so it would have come out, you know, 2017, 2018, and it was magnificent. I mean, the range of flowers and colors and shapes and sizes in this large family of plants was just amazing. But he knew every trick to keep them alive. Oh, wow. If you can find his book, I wish I could remember his name. I think the title was just Succulents. Okay. So a little searching, you might be able to find it. Author from South uh, South Africa. He had a great accent. Okay. Um, and he had all these growing tips inside. But okay. um, succulent, you know, essentially to me means uh, a plant with very fleshy plant parts that holds mm -hmm. a tremendous amount of water because in its native environment, it may only get watered a couple of times a year. So oh. the, these plants are geniuses at storing water. And um, their biggest enemy, of course, is roots that don't dry out. That is the exact opposite of what these succulents want. So tell okay. me what you're growing and tell me what kind of a growing medium you have them in, what conditions. Okay. Well, you know, I don't know the types of succulents that I have. They're the kinds that you see in the grocery store and you think to yourself, like, today I'm going to be a gardener. <laughs> I'm going to grow this. Um, so I don't know exactly what types they are, but they um, – I've, I've had them in a couple of different vessels. So I've tried just like a ceramic pot um, and – I think my first problem is that I keep them in the soil that they come in, but I, what I've tried doing is watering them with like a spray bottle um, once a week, and I noticed that that tends to kill them pretty quickly. <laughs> but two, um, I was recently gifted a beautiful arrangement of succulents from a florist, right? and she has it in this like metal container, um, like a rectangular metal container and it um it's filled with like rocks and sand at the bottom and then it has like a layer of soil with like rocks on top mm -hmm. and i have killed every single one and i've Aww. had it for a month because so, there because this was meant to be a real display item there was no hole in the bottom of the container right exactly no hole in the bottom of the container so here's what they need um now, uh, Oklahoma, indoors, you're dry yeah. most of the time. It's not uh, certainly mm -hmm. not the worst environment for them. Have you tried putting them outside in the summer? No, I haven't. You know, because Oklahoma, uh, you know, it's not exactly cactus territory, but it's mm -hmm. a lot of the conditions are yeah. right there for it. You know, mm -hmm. the wind that would be sucking the excess water out of the plants, the, the hot and dry times you have. At any rate, the idea here, it's so tempting because a lot of succulents are displayed in these beautiful containers. But mm -hmm. you, you have to have drainage. You have to have superb drainage. So any container has to um, have drainage holes in the bottom. Mm -hmm. And okay. what you want to do is fill the container with, uh, she was right with the sand. You want uh, physically a sharp sand, specifically a sharp sand, which you okay. can get. You, you're going to need to go to garden centers, real independent garden centers. Okay. And um, those people will also hold your hand and tell you how to care for these things. I mean, we're lured in in supermarkets and big box stores, but those people don't know anything. Right, exactly. Whereby the garden center people will really help you out. Um, sharp sand, some compost for nutrition. 
uh, maybe okay. a little bit of peat moss in there as well. But the idea uh -huh. is you want these things to be able to dry out totally. And you can tell they get all they get all fleshy, right? They get soft, uh -huh. squishy. That's simply overwatering. Um, uh -huh. Even in the winter when your house is dry, these plants don't need a lot of water. They're storing a month of water in them. And in nature, succulents typically would not get misted. Okay. That's that's more for the house plants with long leaves that turn brown sometimes in ah. the summertime. So um, I'm sure you have uh, a plant society in your area. As, as you mm -hmm. know, Oklahoma is one of my biggest territories. I mean, we have so many listeners there. And oh, I, I think because you're, oh, yeah, Oklahoma City, uh, Norman, um, lots of other areas um, in, in and outside of, of Oklahoma. No, it's a, it's a real hotbed because conditions are That's difficult awesome. and people need the help. Mm -hmm. So reach mm -hmm. out to a garden club. See if you've got a group that grows succulents for fun. Become okay. a member of that and you'll become like, you know, a hero. You'll, you'll be, people will be asking you for advice. But drainage, yeah. drainage, drainage. Nice containers. Okay. Succulents grow well in terracotta pots because they drain well. And okay. you don't need to be afraid of watering them, but you must avoid overwatering. The root system has to dry out completely between waterings. Mm -hmm. And now that we're talking about pots with holes in the bottom, yes, you can put a saucer underneath um, to make sure your surface doesn't get ruined, but never let water be in that saucer. Okay. And then I think they'd love to go outside in the summer. Don't give up. Okay. Thank you, Lauren. You take care. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I will appear Thursday and Friday, February 7th and 8th at the Midwestern Herb and Garden Show at the Times Square Mall in Mount Vernon, Illinois, which is halfway between Evansville and St. Louis on I-64. But don't go pulling your driving gloves on just yet because we'll be right back with the story behind a place where they grow food the really old-fashioned way and more of your old-fashioned phone calls. I'm fashionable Mike McGrath. And you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from WLVT, PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39 in beautiful Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, we will tell you how to grow your lupins so that if a highwayman comes along and demands all your lupins, you'll have something to give him other than your life. We'll also take lots more of your fabulous phone calls, but now it's time to welcome our very special guest, Pat Kapora who is the garden coordinator for the historic gardens at the Burnside Plantation. Um, full disclosure, Pat and I worked together for many years at Rodale Press, back when I was in the newsletter division, and then he would always tell me the things I got wrong when I was the editor of Organic Gardening Magazine, because he is himself a fabulous gardener. Pat, it's great to see you again, and welcome to the show. It's nice to see you, and thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being had. Now, um, tell us about the Burnside Plantation. Let's start from the bottom up. It's so weird um, to hear something in this part of the world called a plantation. I always thought that that was a, a southern term, but does it have significance? Uh, I don't know that it has any real significance, the, 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 the word plantation, but it has a lot of history that, you know, they, it was uh, purchased by uh, James Burnside in um, 1747, I believe, and he and his wife Mary and their family lived there for the next 10 years. Um, so, you know, uh, the Moravians all live communally, uh, which is in the historic district here in, in, in Bethlehem, and uh, James Burnside was among the first of the Moravians to leave the um, uh, the community to, you know, to uh, have his own, own his own property and, and to farm there. So. Um, 
it's always been called the Burnside Plantation as far as I've, you know, been involved. And it dates back uh, pre-revolution. Absolutely, yes. And was he, I, I guess back then, if you lived out in this part of Pennsylvania, you had to farm, you had to garden. Exactly. And, um, you, know, you know, as we'll talk about what's in the garden, you could see they were all um, herbs, flowers, uh, vegetables that could be stored over winter. So it was, it was all about, you know, how to f they could feed themselves uh, during the winter uh, months. Because that really was it. Your summertime garden was not how we perceive it today as this seasonal delight where we can go out and pick tomatoes and peppers. You better be growing a lot of sweet potatoes. You better be That's going right. field corn for storage and pumpkins right. and long storage melons and, and potatoes and carrots, things that would help you not right. starve to death in late February. Right, you know, uh, beets, uh, parsnips, uh, all of those root crops were uh, heavily in the, in, in, in the garden. And it was the women who took care of the kitchen garden, you know, the, the garden today, and, it, and, and it's probably close to the same size as it was uh, back in the 17, late 1740s, is about a half acre. Um, uh, and then the men took care of the field crops, like corn would not have been grown in the garden, that would have been out in the field. And, so the men would have worked in the in the fields. The women would have taken care of the, uh, uh, you know, the kitchen garden or what they call the parlor garden. The uh, parlor. Garden? Yeah, that's a term that I've come across as I've you know gotten involved with um, you know the uh, historic um, Bethlehem Museum and Sites organization that um, uh, runs uh, Burnside Plantation. Now, what 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 is a parlor garden? Well, I think it's basically it's the same as the kitchen garden. So you could just you know step outside your house and you could pick what you needed to prepare your meals and go back in. So I think it's as simple as that. So um, this goes back again to pre-revolutionary war. Um, at what point did the plantation fall out of the hands of the family? and what became of it in the interim between now well, and then. That's well, a long time. Yeah, well, James Burnside uh, suffered a stroke, and I think in 1755, and his wife then sold the plantation, which was 500 acres, uh, to the Moravian congregation, to the Moravian church. And then the Moravian congregation leased it to various farmers for about the next 100 years, uh, to I think 1748, if I remember. Uh, mm, is that true? to 1848, sorry, right. it's a century, <laughs> to 1848, and um, uh, at least it to various farmers as part of their, um, uh, you know, acreage to, to grow uh, crops for the community that was, that was residing in uh, what is now historic downtown Bethlehem. Um, after that, it went into private, various um, private hands. And the Moravians are great record keepers, so there is a lot of history, and you can see who's owned it along the way. But um, it was owned then privately, and eventually Lehigh County took ownership of it. Um, and I think in 19, in the late 1980s, maybe 1987, leased it to uh, Burnside Plantation, Inc., which was a, a nonprofit. Uh, that is now part of um, Historic Bethlehem Museum and Sites. And at that point is when they started to restore the property, the house as a museum, you know, the, re restore the barn, and then, of course, restore the garden. And again, as you say, the Moravians were noted for being meticulous record keepers. Absolutely. Were there records of what was planted in the garden and, and how it was laid out? Absolutely. So, yeah, so I think that's really one of the interesting things, and that's what we try and do as volunteers is maintain the, the historical layout and the historical planting of the garden. So the, it was in three tiers, uh, the garden. Um, you know, Beyond the three tiers, around the perimeter of the garden, there uh, were antique roses, a variety of flowers for pollination. There were some grape vines that we have, you know, continued to keep. Um, the top tier were uh, medicinal herbs and, uh, and, and plants. So um, you'd have a variety of herbs that they would use either for culinary or for, uh, for healing. So St. John's Ward is there. There's a, an entire bed that I think has um, a dozen different mints, all, you know, all, all, all different varieties of mints. 
uh, when people come to the garden, they say, well, where are the tomatoes? And so we, so we explain the tomatoes are over there, but they really were never there originally. Uh, so we try and represent the garden in the same layout and with the same type of, uh, of plants that have always been there. Now, where is the Burnside Plantation located in, in general? Because some people yep. will be watching us in the Lehigh Valley. Some people will be listening in Georgia. You know? Right. So it is, uh, it, it's within the city of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Uh, and then specifically, if you are from Bethlehem, it's right off of Shanersville Road uh, and the Monocacy Creek. So it's a beautiful piece of property that is uh, right along the Monocacy Creek. And uh, if you're going up Shanersville Road, you'll see a sign for the Burnside Plantation and you pull in there and you know, there's parking, there's, you know, the, 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 the house, which is the museum, is not always open. There is a summer kitchen where they do uh, kitchen demonstrations. Um, there's two great festivals there, um, the Blueberry Festival and then the Apple Festival uh, later in the fall. So it's a very active, um, uh, you know, the uh, uh, Penn State Master Gardeners actually have a, uh, a pollinator's garden there that they've also established. So it's, it's a beautiful piece of property. It's uh, Now it's six and a half acres, I believe, totally from the original 500 acres. Do you still grow the fields of uh, field corn and things like that? Uh, no, we don't. We just uh, maintaining the, gar the half acre garden is uh, enough of a challenge. And, and that's what people want to. Well, they probably would be interested in seeing what was out in the field also. I mean, but... Come on, Pat, you know, bloody butcher. <laughs> Get know. some, you know, 15 foot <laughs> high stalks with blood red kernels. Yeah. Well, we grew this year for the first time we grew. What was the. Uh, oh, it was a. It's a it's an it's a it's a um, an ornamental corn. Uh, sure, like an Indian corn. Yeah, that grew that grew really really tall. And actually, one of the women who planted it, we did it, planted it on the perimeter because um, we have sunflowers along the perimeter. So we took some of that space uh, to plant this corn, and uh, she made beautiful wreaths. Oh, broom corn, and she made brooms. Right. Okay, she she sure. made. She actually, at the end of the year, we actually, we, uh, we, uh, uh, she made two brooms, uh, which was wonderful. So that was a lot of fun. Now, when you're planning um, which heirlooms to put in, which plants to put in, the ones that are historically accurate, are you going through the old records and trying to duplicate some of the sequences from year to year? Yeah, we are. Like, for example, one of the, the, the beans that was planted historically was a scarlet runner. Oh, they're right? fabulous. Yeah. So, you know, so we will try and, 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 and do that. Now, at the same time, though, I have to say one of the reasons people do volunteer is because they want to enjoy really fresh, tasty produce. Mm -hmm. And there's some other varieties that maybe are a little better. So a provider bean may taste a little better than maybe what they grew back in uh, colonial times. So we, we'll stick with the heirloom varieties, but if there is a variety that is more popular, you know, we'll substitute that in. So uh, in the middle of summer, let's say, when everything, or, or June, June to me is the month that you want to freeze in your garden because, <laughs> right. you know, things just look so beautiful. Right. Nothing's gotten out of control. The insects haven't found you yet. The weeds are well behaved. Um, but during June and July and August, if, if when people come and wander through your garden, what are they going to be surprised by um, in, in the ways that things were done differently? Well, I, I think just like, well, I, I think first of all, the way that the garden is laid out, it's called a, a butterfly shaped garden just because of the, uh, the pattern of the garden that it wings out. And then there's like, you know, um, you know, symmetrical beds on either side of the, the, uh, the brick path um, that go into the three tiers. So I think the first thing they'll see is like, you know, there's just very aesthetic layout and highly structured, very highly structured. And then if, again, if they take one of the brochures that are in the in, in the uh, the box as they enter the garden, they'll start to see, there's a little bit of history, but they'll like very quickly see that it starts with flowering, uh, flowers, and herbs, moves its way down to, you know, a big bed of sweet potatoes. When sweet potatoes are, have come in, like in in, uh, in June, it just completely, it, it's, it's one yeah. of the best, it's my favorite plot because there's no weeding. Yeah. Because, you know, they just like just covers everything and it's just wonderful. So uh, I, I, I don't know that they would necessarily 
say, oh, yeah, this is really representative of the, you know, the 1700s, but I think what they would see is a very highly structured, you know, because, again, the Moravians were very organized, uh, and I think, that, you know, I think they were very production-oriented also. You know, they were wanted to get the maximum out of, the, out, of their, uh, out, of their, out of their effort and their land. And so what they would see is, like, I think a highly productive garden. And, in fact, when, when we're there for the um, – we have volunteers who work there um, – during the, the Blueberry Festival and the Apple Festival when thousands of people come through. And the one comment that you just hear over and over is, I wish my garden looked like this. Uh -huh. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> well, sure, you get 20 friends to come yeah. over and take care of it, and it might, right? Well, that's true. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's keeping up with a half-acre garden, even with 20 friends, is uh, sometimes we get behind, obviously. Yeah. So we're always looking for new volunteers. Oh, right. And what about... Um I just had a brain freeze. <laughs> uh, are you guys dressed? Um, do you ever do the colonial dress or anything out? Uh, but we don't. The, the people who work in the summer kitchen do a great job of colonial dress and the demonstration kitchen. Uh, and they use um, some of our produce. They, they, they actually have full access to as much produce from the garden as they want. And they have a number of um, demonstrations that they do for school children and then just for the general public throughout the year. They're always dressed in colonial dress, and you know, they're a lot of fun. And th there's a, a wonderful wood-burning oven in there that we've used for pizzas, uh, you know, with uh, the gardening group. Like, well, we, you know, we've made pizzas in there at times, which is uh, really nice. Well, a summer kitchen, Pat, that's, I know that that's in your DNA. That's right. Um, Pat is a very talented gardener, um, a fierce Sicilian, if I may that's say. Right. And, you know, the idea of working with a place with a summer kitchen, I mean, that's, you know, that probably sealed the deal for you. Well, I don't have the keys to the summer kitchen. <laughs> I, don't I, have to, I have to ask permission to go to, to, to enter the summer kitchen, but it's, uh, it's a great resource. I mean, and, you know, the other thing I want to mention about the garden, about Burnside. Is, we should before, you know, we oh, should ahead, assume that everybody knows what a summer kitchen is. But before air conditioning or anything like that, might be stifling hot in the house. So you did all your cooking in an open room, in an open area outside of, of the house. It's a separate building with huge, now they're windows. I, I don't you know, maybe they were just open spaces, open. Uh, let the heat out. Yeah. To let the heat out. And then a large uh, oven for, uh, you know, uh, baking bread, for cooking. This, this oven, I think, was primarily a bread oven more than anything else because of the way it's shaped. It's, uh, the dome is very low. So. You know, I think the indication is that that was primarily a bread oven overall. And at the end of the season, um, you must have a lot of excess produce. Where does that go? We do. So throughout the season, we have a lot of produce because, as you know, things come in uh, over time. And the other thing we've gotten better at is uh, succession planting. And then one of the things that we did three years ago, because we did have uh, a lot of excess, um, we made an arrangement with uh, the executive chef at the Hotel Bethlehem, Michael Adams. Oh, excellent. And so we uh, provide our excess um, um, uh, produce, um, and um, and you know they're serving three meals a day, 365 days a year. So they have capacity for as much and as much as we can, can give them. And uh, so we give them our excess uh, uh, produce, and then they give us a donation that covers the cost of our seeds and our plants for the coming year. Oh, so perfect. so over the last few years, we've like you know become some somewhat self-subsidized, and so that's a good arrangement. So, Pat, that's so, so nothing Moravian. goes. So, that's, that's so Moravian. Yes, and the the Moravians are also good commerce people. In fact. Uh, uh, the house that we lived in, where Sandy, my wife uh, and I lived in, uh, was the Timothy Horsfield house, and he was really the first general manager of the Moravians. He was he was the magistrate, uh, but he was basically the business guy mm -hmm. there. And the Moravians were really good business people. So, so you wanted to like that's touch right. So I wanted, I wanted spirit that, That's there. exactly right. That's exactly right. So yeah. So uh, the Moravians were good. Were, they were smart business people. They were very industrious. Uh, and they were, uh, you know, just, you know, lovely, peace, peaceful, uh, you know, uh, congregation. Absolutely. And where would we be without the Moravian star at Christmas time? Exactly that right. Fabulous decoration. All right. Well, we encourage everyone in the area to go visit the Burnside Plantation this spring, summer, fall. If you're coming to the Lehigh Valley, it sounds like a nice little um, 
drop-off point for you. Make sure you check it out. What's the website, Pat? Uh, if you go to historicbethlehem.org, you'll find a tab for Burnside Plantation. Okay, Historic Bethlehem. Yes. That's where you get started. Yes. All right, Pat Kapora, um, old friend and garden manager. Um, pleasure to have you on the show today. Uh, it was great. It was out. great to be here. It was really nice to reconnect with you again, Mike. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I will appear on Thursday, February 21st and Friday the 22nd at the Connecticut Flower and Garden Show at the Connecticut Convention Center in West Hartford, Connecticut. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet, because we'll be right back with details on how you can grow your very own lupins and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from WLVT PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural, organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Your lupins, please. Oh, oh, what? Come, come, don't play games with me, my lord of Buckingham. What can you mean? Your life or your lupins, my lord? <laughs> In a bunch, in a bunch. <laughs> Thank you, my friends. And now, a good evening to you all. <laughs> he seeks them here. He seeks them there. He seeks those lupins everywhere. <laughs> the murdering blackguard. He's taken all our lupins. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39 in Bethlehem, PA. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and we're in the stretch right now, cats and kittens. Yes, in just a few short minutes, as opposed to those agonizing long minutes, we'll drag you into the wonderful world of lupins, very tall flowering plants that come in a riotous array of colors. But first, more of your riotous phone calls. 833-727-9588. Frank, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you very much for taking the call. Well, thank you for making it, Frank. How are you, man? I'm very good. And where is Frank very good? Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Just across the bridge from Philadelphia. Correct. All right. What can we do for Frank in the Garden State? Well, I, at, just before Thanksgiving, uh, bought and set up a worm bin. Mm-hmm. And there was plenty of information online about how you got the worm bid started. And there was information also about what the end product would look like. But going from A to Z, I could, really couldn't find a lot about how you deal with the day-to-day -day stuff. And I've been doing it now for about seven weeks. And as I look at uh, the bin when I go in there and dig around... Things just aren't looking like the end product. So I'm wondering if I'm doing something wrong and had a number of questions about the process once you get started. Okay. Do you have a worm bin that has multiple levels, trays that stack on top of each other, or are you like using a Rubbermaid bin or something? Uh, multiple trays. Oh, okay. Um, that should work just fine. How many trays do you have? Two. Oh, is that all it came with? Yes, there's a, a collection, a, you know, a liquid collection bin below. Yeah, so I understand that. Yeah, the worm tea. Right. So uh, it should be very simple. Um, I have the same uh, device called the worm tower. And what you do is you collect your kitchen waste, um, not cooked food, not leftovers, but uh, raw waste, like the broccoli cores and the apple cores and the browned out lettuce leaves and stuff like that, and coffee filters, coffee, ground coffee, used coffee, spent coffee in the filters. The worms love that. So you, you hold on to that stuff. You collect it until you got enough to cover the tray. And then you simply shred up black and white newspaper until you cover all the kitchen waste in there. Now, presumably, at some point during this process, you got worms to introduce 
into the bin. So you get your worms in there, and then your goal is to make this nice and moist. They need a uh, moist environment. So you get some clean water, preferably not city tap water, and you pour it gently over top of the shredded newspaper. And it's going to come out the bottom where they got the spigot for collecting the worm tea. And when it does come out the bottom, just keep re-pouring that worm tea over top of the shredded newspaper until you think you've got things at stasis. You don't want it to be too sloppy. You don't want it to be too wet, but you never want to let it dry out. Then when you've collected uh, enough, enough garbage, enough waste, after that, you put the second tray on top, layer the bottom of that with garbage, and then shred up more black and white newspaper, put that on top and moisten it up. Now I've got four trays on mine. So the nice advantage to having the extra trays is by the time I'm on my last tray filled with garbage, the first tray down on the bottom is done. It's completely worm castings. Well, that's, that's really one of the questions I had is how long does it take to go from garbage? Because what I did was I, put, I did a little slightly differently than you did, but same idea. Shredded newspaper and some shredded cardboard as a base put the worms in there and then the garbage on top and then shredded newspaper, some shredded leaves and, and uh, on top of that. Oh, okay. So you have something blocking the entry to no. the tray. Oh, no. The worms are getting up and down through it. Cause oh, okay. It's, it's, okay. Because they're, they're down in that collection tray. There's a, um, And that's one of the things that really started making me question it. Well, yeah, they escape sometimes. They get down into the into the tray, but all you do is you pick a nice day where you can take it outside and then you pour them back into one of the layers. Oh, yeah, but it, but the, on the the screen above the uh, liquid collection area, yes. the screen above it, there's it looks like castings there, but they are sopping wet. And yeah, yeah, because they're getting the most moisture. Um, when you are done, when you have a tray that's completely finished, you have a couple of options. You can take that tray and you can dump it into a working compost pile to really accelerate the compost and supercharge it, or you can leave it sit out in a cool, dry area, maybe even underneath a ceiling fan with a bunch of newspaper underneath it, and then slowly dry the castings out, and then they'll look like the stuff in the, in the little bags at the garden centers that say worm castings. Okay, so the fact that everything's looking very wet in there now is not bad as long as the worms are moving around and, and being active. If you if you are getting too much worm tea out of the bottom, it would be good if you could pour that. If you have an outdoor compost pile, pour it in that. Um, is, how how is it smelling? How is it doing? Oh, it the, the worm tea is very ripe. Is it supposed to be? It is when you first put the fresh garbage in. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, well, it is. Okay. Well, if it's too ripe to use indoors, uh, I just store it someplace and then use it on outdoor plants or, again, pour it into a compost pile. But that's a sign that you're over moistening. And get that, no more cardboard in there. That's totally unnecessary. I know sometimes the instructions give you the 18 things. You're supposed to give them grit and all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, Garbage, shredded newspaper, water, that's all my worms get. I've been doing this for about 12 years now. I get better at it every year. These, these creatures are really the best way to get rid of your, reprocess your kitchen waste. And um, you will find that they work faster in the summertime than they do in the winter. Okay, so about how long is it that it takes for to go from fresh garbage to finished product uh eyes eyes and ears uh or nose you'll see you'll see uh but two to me two trays is not enough to keep going uh with with my system typically by the time i put the fourth tray on top the bottom tray is completely finished okay so fill it up and then just put another tray on top and just let it go correct all the new trays always go on the top because the worms like to climb up okay well, All right, man. Helpful. 
Very good. Yeah, and be patient. You're only, you've only been doing this a little while. You will get good at it. It's super easy. And these worm castings are dynamite for your plants. Thank you so much. All right. Good luck, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, as promised, it's time for the question of the week, which we just had to call, Give Me All Your Lupins. Daniel, in the northern suburbs of Chicago, writes, I've been trying to grow lupins both from seed and from plants over the past couple of years with no success. I have directly sown lupin seed in the soil during December and gotten germination in the spring, but the lupins die back during the summer and don't return. Since I am in northern Illinois, I have pretty dense clay soil. So I've also tried growing them outdoors in peat pots and tried backfilling the holes with a mix of native soil and perlite for increased drainage. Is there a better method I could be using to increase my chances of success by significantly increasing the drainage of my soil? Well, as most of you can imagine, I originally chose Daniel's question just so we could play around with the famous Monty Python sketch. Give me all your lupins. I realized what an amazing and underutilized flower they are. Members of the pea family, that's edible peas, not the popular flower named sweet peas. Lupins are, like peas, legumes, which means that they can absorb plant-feeding nitrogen from the atmosphere. So if you got a good stand of them, you could till them into the soil as a cover crop to be followed by sweet corn. Or you could just use them as a hot source of nitrogen in a compost pile after they're done. But first, you got to grow them. And their single biggest requirement is good drainage, which is the opposite of Daniel's dense Indiana clay. I emailed him back to see if he was also a flat earth gardener. His reply? Yeah, the area where I've been trying to grow the lupins already contains established perennials, and I've been too lazy to try to move everything into a raised bed. I do have a raised bed that I use for vegetables in another part of my yard. Well, the clay is the problem here, but overcoming it will prove very worthwhile. Most sources recommend planting lupins in the back of perennial beds as they have the height to carry it off with the tall flower spikes often growing four foot tall or more, and in pretty much any and every dramatic color you might imagine. If Dan wants lupins for such a dramatic backdrop, I suggest essentially digging a ditch in the area he wants these tall beauties to grow and not reusing any of the clay he's removing. Toss it into the woods, throw it at evil squirrels, or give it to a potter or a brick maker. Now, make that trench about a foot deep and then slam the tines of a garden fork or pitchfork down into the subsoil to bust it up and hopefully create some more drainage. Then refill the hole with a combination of yard waste compost, that's not composted manure, milled peat moss, and sharp sand. About one-third each should be ideal. You can add a little bit of hardwood ash to counteract the natural acidity of the peat moss, but not too much as lupins also prefer a slightly acidic soil. Now, don't skip on the width of that trench. You want to be sure to leave room for airflow in front of the lupins, as crowding them can lead to problems with mildew. Lupins should take well to this kind of light, loose growing medium wherever and however they planted. But here's how Jill Jessielowski, one of the best of my old organic gardening staff in the 90s, raised a nice stand of the dramatic flowers for a story on growing from seed. First, she followed the advice of a professional to always start the seeds indoors and to give them a little abuse before planting them. Now, some sources recommend chilling the seeds, but Jill found success by just, quote, nicking them with a kitchen knife and then soaking these assaulted seeds in water for 24 hours. Now, the seeds are as big as bean seeds, she explained, so it was pretty easy to do this. Just don't nick the visible eye at the center of the seed. Now, yes, this nicking is a necessary step, as the seeds are reluctant to take up water otherwise. Then about eight weeks before your first frost, sow the soaked seeds in six packs filled with a light, loose seed-starting mix. No clay! And keep them in a warm spot indoors. 
Keep the seeds very close to the surface. Keep the medium moist and be patient. It's going to take a couple of weeks to a month for the plants to emerge. Then keep them under bright light and plant them outside right around your last frost date in spring. Now, some varieties are annuals. Some are herbaceous perennials. All like moist soil and full sun, but not scorching summer heat. Now, as the individual flowers fade, you can either deadhead them for a longer bloom time or let them set their seed. Then you can either collect and save the seed or let it fall to the ground where some of that seed will probably grow new plants for you the following year. Now, the seeds of species or open pollinated lupins will produce the exact same type and color of plant. The seeds of hybrid varieties will produce unpredictable lupins, which could be a lot of fun. Then is more, then is more, riding through the night. Soon every lupin in the land will be in his mighty hand. He steals them from the rich and gives them to the poor. Mr. Moore, Mr. Moore, Mr. Moore. Well, that sure was some good info on a new flowering plant for you to try now, wasn't it? Luckily for you, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over in detail, just click the link for the question of the week at our website, youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to reveal my travel plans to Dennis Moore if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 1-833-PBS-WLVT. That's 833-727-9588. Or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Please tell us where you're emailing from, and don't say your computer. You'll find all of this new contact information at our website, youbetyourgarden.org. And don't forget, you'll always find all of our new contact information at our website, youbetyourgarden.org, where you will also find the answers to many of your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, and our podcast. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our engineer is Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda McGrath. Check out her fine work and stay current with the show at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Tavia Minnick works the phones. Our website wonder is Anastasia Weckerly. Jazzy Jonas Bowen is our audio editor. Kelly Hurd and Jake Boyer are our video editors. Our floor manager, John DeSantis, would rather be home watching Invasion of the Saucer Men. Harassed and harried Javier Diaz is our director, might be our producer, and seems to sigh more loudly every time I come into the station. Regal Ron Ruscha is our director of underwriting. Our marketing madman is jaunty Jim McDonald. Andy Cummins makes the equipment work. Zach the Tech Wisniewski is in the house. And what can we say about the big kahuna? The grand poobah, our beloved CEO, Tim Fallon, that hasn't been said before. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, warning you and Tim that that would be a surer sign of the apocalypse than John Crock appearing in an all-star game. So I'll keep resetting all the station clocks to different times so that I can be sure to see you and not the four horsemen next week. Or the Silver Surfer or Carrot Top or Richard Simmons. <laughs>